this a real train? This is not a real train. <laughs> let's <laughs> to be clear. Let's let's call this the Elephant Express, okay? I love it. Hey folks, and welcome to Brown and Out. Today we're talking to Cedric Davis. How's it going, Cedric? It's going great. <laughs> Cedric, um what are a few things that folks should know about you? Um, well, I uh, I'm a transplant here from Maryland, so kind of big city mentality in a little town that wants to be a city. And, uh, yeah. I'm in insurance. (laughs) Okay, let's start from the top. Transplant from Maryland. Yeah. So, how was your Maryland upbringing? What part of Maryland? Tacoma Park. So I was born in D.C. proper and uh, moved out when I was four. And I was raised in Tacoma Park, Maryland, which is kind of a, it's always been more of a liberal kind of hippy-dippy suburb, but also has some like projects. So it's, it's an interesting mix of a community. So you get a little bit of everything. Tacoma Park, you, you would consider it like a suburb of D.C.? Well, Tacoma Park is very fiercely independent, and they were there before they were a suburb. It was incorporated pretty pretty early. I think, if if anything, it was an independent city before it was a suburb of D.C. I mean, they have their own municipal... Uh, they have their own municipal public works. They have their own police force. They have a pretty, a pretty vibrant community center. They're the only library in Maryland that's still owned by the city, too. So, I mean, the only thing they don't have is power, and don't don't put it past them. Yes, I feel like I should uh, rescind my initial comment a bit because <laughs> I think I I'm understanding quickly how it can be um, sort of derogatory to refer to civic centers outside of D.C. as being like suburbs of D.C. Mm -hmm. That's not fair. Yeah, I mean, it's... I feel like that community is very specific about how they get referred to. I mean, and and for good reason. They, They worked hard to be as independent as they are. <laughs> but it's um it's so interesting though the DC itself isn't represented um in the way that a lot of people who live in DC feel like it should be on a governmental level. Oh yeah. I mean they have one person in the House of Representatives that doesn't have a voting doesn't have a vote. So I mean essentially the representation they have is literally one of the most fierce public speakers that that brings up great points and can't vote on them. Who are we talking about? Um, Eleanor Holmes Norton, is that it? Yes. Eleanor Holmes Norton. I think that's it. <laughs> we'll edit that. Well, yeah. And if that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> tell, um, us, but, tell us more about them. Um, well, she's, she's just been, she's on, I think she's been on the 
she's been there for like 30 years. She's been there forever. But, I mean, she just brings up the point of, you know, the plight of people of color because she's a, she's a black woman. She brings up, you know, women's issues. She brings up things that we need to talk about as a country, but then she can't vote on them. <laughs> and, I mean, it, it all goes back to how D.C. was incorporated in the first place. But, of course, if D.C. were made a state, the concern is that D.C. would definitely vote Democratic. And so with the fact that it would take a constitutional it would take it would take an amendment to the constitution to be able to change that reality i just don't see it happening the same is in my opinion the same is true of puerto rico how was dc incorporated um well i mean it was i guess they took part of virginia they took part of maryland like six by six square mile block and then incorporated the city but it was the seat of the government and originally there I guess there was a concern about giving them voting power don't ask me why I'm not sure what the whole rationale behind that was but now that there are a bunch of people living there it's kind of kind of gone along this long without having statehood it would be difficult to to kind of do that now plus Virginia kind of took their half back (laughs) so uh, let me put a different way Hmm. what would it take for DC and Puerto Rico for that matter to be fully incorporated well for them to get statehood you'd have to have a constitutional amendment which if I'm not mistaken is has to be ratified by three-fifths of governors and and it's like a two-thirds majority in House and Senate, House and or Senate. So that seems that seems like a steep ask. Does it seem like a steep ask because so many of those governors and senators are white? Not just white, but Right now, so many of them are Republican. And so it's hard to imagine a world where Republicans would vote to get less power. Because if they have a majority in the House and Senate right now and they have a majority of governors, then you'd have to, you'd have to get governors to vote against their own political best interest. And I don't see a lot of examples of that happening. Do you do you see a parallel between whiteness and republicanism? Yeah, I mean when you look at the Let me let me ask a clarifying question. When you say a parallel between whiteness and republicanism, can you be a little more specific? Are um republicans in governing positions aligning themselves with policies that primarily benefit whiteness? Well, yeah. I mean, that's been the case 
for as long as I've known, and certainly before that too, of course. Um, you look at the you look at the way that any 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 bill, if it has a way of benefiting someone over someone else, and if you can draw a distinct line between you know, how it benefits people of color versus people in the majority, then you can kind of see how those go. I mean, you think about how oversight of police stations or oversight of anyone who has a position of authority over, over you know, controlling the population and how those rules kind of skew towards giving a lot more discretion to the people who enforce them that's that's really the the best example you have of how laws and how any of those regulations will benefit people in the majority that more than they will anybody in any any person of color so when we see republican politicians consistently vote in a way that restricts governing power to places like D.C. Mm -hmm. and Puerto Rico. It's not like a big leap for the imagination just of us two people sitting here right now. Like We seem to agree that it's, it's not a big leap of the imagination to think that, oh, the way you're voting not only is benefiting you politically, but also benefiting you as a white person and protecting a sort of status quo that benefits white people mostly. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the, of course, when you look at the demographics of D.C., um, I mean, you can see very clearly that it's a city that's a lot more diverse than the rest of the country. If you look at Puerto Rico, of course you're going to see more diversity there. I mean, it's Puerto Rico. And when you take a look at the idea of Republicans asking to give more voting rights to that many more people of color, I I don't see I don't see that happening. I don't see it happening. I mean, I, Sorry, I don't see I don't see a Republican-led majority giving that much power to people of color. But then again, to be frank, I'm not sure that I mean I think if if Democrats had a big enough majority, then maybe they would have the political will to do something that was that big. But I, I really, to be frank, don't see them doing it either. It's almost as if um, Republican political motivations are aligned with white nationalist political motivations. It almost seems that way. And it almost seems like Democratic political motivations are not far behind. I would, I would, I would think about it this way. So... I mean, if we're kind of looking at an analogy, all right, so there's a train, 
that goes from D.C. to Montreal. And then there's another train that goes from, from let's say, St. Albans to Quebec. Now, let's just call this the Nationalist Express. Now, for a while, those two trains are invariably going to share the same track. Now, the question is, do you let people get on your train in St. Albans and transfer down to D.C.? In other words, the interests of the two groups are aligned to some extent. I wouldn't say that everybody who's going from D.C. to Montreal sometimes gets on that other train to go to Quebec City, but I don't see them barring them from the train to get to D.C., that analogy okay. for now. Um, but, uh, but put another way, Republicans and Democrats have a lot of the same motivations in mind. Mm-hmm. They, yeah, I mean, they go about it a different way. And at the heart of a lot of that is protecting the status quo, which is protecting white supremacy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see any problem with drawing the parallel between of course, Republican interests and the fact that there are Republicans that aren't willing to disavow and actively work against the interests of white supremacists. But Donald Demo- Trump. Yeah. But Democrats and Republicans both are institutions that are there to keep the status quo working. And If the status quo is that some people get power and some people get less power, then, I mean, it's not a a far jump to say that this institution is keeping keeping people from being able to have the... keeping people who don't have power now from being able to gain power. Right, so sort of for all of the um, lip service that mainstream Democrats would give to progressive movements, it's really more um, beneficial to them to keep many of the same um, institutions and and policies in place, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and certainly there are exceptions to any rule. I mean, of course, there are people who truly believe in equality and truly believe that there's a there's an existential problem with our political system right now that try to operate within the bounds of the major political parties but they're not the majority right 
Do you smell a revolution? Mm. You know, I was a little, I have to be, I have to say, it, I, have, I was a little surprised when, you know, we saw the, we saw people kind of hit the streets in, in the Occupy movement, and then we saw them kind of go home. I mean, and I feel like there is some, there are some remnants of that that are still around, but I feel like the kind of change we need is a little more substantial than flipping the house. But but do you think that um, voting more progressive Democrats into office is a good start? I mean, I think it's it certainly is more helpful to have people who have a more holistic view of politics and who who are able to to speak more fluently to a larger base in the in the party in the democratic party but i feel like that's a start and not not an end goal so what more is needed I mean, I feel like people need to be more aware politically of what happens around them because the way that the way that anything happens in D.C. is either people don't care enough to get out in the streets for it or they don't care enough to make a stink about something so it just sails through. Or, you know, if something is egregious enough, then you see popular protest for it. So I'd say... I'd say that's the that's the thing we need is we need people to be more aware of what happens after they finish voting so that they can hold politicians accountable to their needs. How do you feel about beach plums? Mm. I don't know if anybody here is in the pocket of beach plums, but mm, I don't know. I'm going to go back, back to blueberries. Are they comparable though? Really? They look similar, but mm, the fruit. Yeah. No, I feel like they're, they're, they're not comparable. They're like some tiny ass little plums. They're tiny. They're tiny. They're tart. And the fruit is not sweet enough. It's like, it's like, it's like the promise of a blueberry. It's like when somebody has like, it's like some, mm, mm. it's like when somebody gives you a glazed donut and you look at it and you're like, oh my God, that's a Krispy Kreme donut. And then you bite into it and you know, they bought it in a store and you know, they don't got no Krispy Kremes up in Vermont. So the taste of disappointment. Mm. Yes. The bitter taste of disappointment. It truly is like 60% pit. It really is. Like, that is, there's a choking hazard on that box, I'm sure, somewhere, because... Mm-mm. But they don't come in a box. So no one really sells them. You just got to pick a branch of beach plums for yourself. Yes. <laughs> well... Begging for somebody else. Listen, 
What, uh, what else should we know about Cedric? What should the folks know about Cedric? Hmm. I mean, well, I guess I, I sell insurance now. Can you tell us about your life as an insurance salesperson? Well, it's been, it's been short so far. I mean, I started my professional life in Vermont a little over a decade ago at Comcast. And so did that for 10 years. Um, and that was, that was fruitful. But, of course, you can imagine a little frustration there. Um, you want to talk some shit about Comcast right now? Not at all. I mean, they have fine internet, you know, if you can't get something else like <clears throat> Burlington Telecom. <clears throat> but um, certainly, I mean, they have improving customer service. Since you've been gone or? Mm, well, I know it was on an upswing when I was there. I can't speak to what's happened since then, but. I mean, I have nothing bad to say about Comcast. I mean, it's great internet. You know, I don't personally watch TV, so it was great when it was... I don't watch TV much, I guess I should say. Um, but, you know, I still have a little stock in Comcast. I mean, it seems like maybe after a little bit of a blip since I left in January, they've seemed to improve a little bit more in the exchange there. So, nothing bad to say about them. You don't watch TV? I don't watch a lot of TV. The thing is that I really don't have time. I mean, I spend my time, I go to work, you know. Sometimes I go out dancing, you know. I like to go to karaoke. I read. And I cook for myself, you know. I don't really have any time for extracurriculars. I mean, sometimes I watch movies, sometimes I'll watch a show, but only when it's on the internet. Not through a cable provider. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Um, what shows are you into lately? Mm, RuPaul's Drag Race. That's the last show I watched. Uh, beyond that, I mean, there's not a lot that I will go out of my way to see. Every once in a while, I'll go on the internet and I'll watch a Colbert Report. Or, you know, sometimes I pick up the Rachel Maddow podcast. You know, do, do you listen? More, any, do you listen to any other podcasts? Oh, I I do listen to a couple. <laughs> uh, mostly, Ra I mean, Rachel Maddow. I'll probably listen to all of them. Um, of course, I listen to Brown and Out now. I've never heard of it. Mm. Is it you good? Should, you is should it check it good? out. You should check it out sometimes. Make your own opinions. It's okay. I'm not here to tell you how it is. Oh. <clears throat> I'll, check, I'll check it out. Yeah. <laughs> but you mentioned... <clears throat> Hairball? You mentioned um, RuPaul's Drag Race. That's... Been kind of problematic as late. Do you want to speak yeah. to any of that? I mean, here's here's the thing: is it there is this this cognitive dissonance, this this push and pull that you have for almost any artist of color? I mean, there are exceptions that get it right most of the time, but 
in in my opinion, I feel like when you have all the power to make decisions about who's staying and who's going, pretty much resting in one person's hands, then either because of whatever nervousness that person has about showing favoritism or whatever actual prejudices that person may have, it's not, it's not going to feel fair. I mean, I don't know if there is a way for RuPaul to, t- to, to be the only decision maker on that show about who stays and who goes, and also to please everybody about the decisions that are made. And so, I know it sounds a little diplomatic, but I mean, I feel like, I feel like, I feel like that's where a lot of the, the feelings come in for people who have opinions about how RuPaul's Drag Race is. Are you talking specifically about <clears throat> Rue favoring white queens over queens of color? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty much what I'm talking about. I mean... When I say that, I mean I feel like I kind of I kind of lost interest about halfway through last season. So, and why was that? Um, I don't know. I was watching it downtown, and I just didn't go downtown as much anymore. <laughs> downtown at Trink, where they'll have mm, no at Esox. They also have uh, drag race viewings at Esox. Oh yeah. Oh, you didn't know. I didn't. It yeah, it's, it wasn't advertised. Yeah, it's not advertised. It's just that, you know, the guy who runs a bar that day. Bob? Mm-hmm. I love Bob. Actually, shout out Bob at Esox. Mm. <clears throat> okay, well, now I don't I look foolish. Yeah. Mm. Well, you learn something new every day. I feel like I like watching it there because it's a smaller crowd, and it's more in... It's easier to hear the TV, and it's also more focused on Rue. And on the show, of course. Now, doesn't RuPaul have a panel of judges, though? That inform her decision. Mm. Mm. But we don't see what happens. I mean, there's no transparency, so how do you know who's suggesting what? And we've seen most of the panels... I mean, sometimes there are other people of color, but that's, it's not usually the majority. And so, if you have one person who's being influenced by this panel of judges that, generally speaking, kind of looks like the winners, you know, it's an interesting, it's something, it's something to think about, (laughs) Paul. <clears throat> so dancing yeah tell us about your passion for the art of dance mm. well when I was younger I used to be in a teen exchange with a Liz Lerman dance exchange and then did you say Liz Lemon? Liz Lerman just clarifying yeah. sorry <laughs> so sorry tell no. us more about the Liz Lerman dance exchange um, it's a it was a a small company out of Tacoma Park, Maryland. Um, and they danced all over. They put together these 
big pieces as a company and then each each company member kind of had other things going on outside of that so sometimes I'd dance with people's specific piece that was showing in DC every once in a while they'd have these big conferences and they generate a lot of movement a lot of activity so you know we had this one this one piece we did at you know University of Maryland and it was like two weeks of pretty intense dance movement generation and that kind of thing and then four performances over a weekend how long did you do that for um I started ooh, I started, it was probably, probably about three years I was doing modern dance with them, and then I did uh, ballet for technique, and then I started at Community College of, uh, the, at Montgomery College, with the Community College in D.C., sorry, in Maryland. Mm. <laughs> um, and I did dance there so I did more jazz contemporary jazz um, and just did a little bit of tap but that was a little too much on my knees so yeah I guess a rich dance history but now I do more <clears throat> dancing in the club what, what was the impetus like what what spawned all of this what was the what first started it well, it was kind of a couple things. Uh, of course, <laughs> my older brother used to do dance too, but as soon as I got interested in that, he somehow lost interest. Um, and, I mean, I'd always been into the idea of movement, and so I guess it was kind of the natural, the natural next step was to go to a dance class and see how you feel about it. And you were, like, in high school? Yeah. Yeah. I really liked modern dance, though. It's something that, you know, the way that they did that at the dance exchange was, it was, it was really, it was really interesting because even the most mundane movements could, could turn into something that, kind of really, really spoke, really spoke to, the artistic side of my brain, which is, which is, it was just really interesting. They defined dance as movement aware of itself, and so, you know. You can throw your hand out, and of course, that's just moving your hand. But if you're aware of how it moves through the space, you're aware of how it relates to other objects around you and things like that, then that's where it becomes dance. I am, in my mind right now, I'm relating that to acting. Mm. And you would, you see the parallels, yeah? Oh, yeah, Yeah. definitely. You mean acting on a stage, or you mean... Yeah, I mean stage acting. I okay. mean, like, reacting, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, a simple, a simple motion becomes way more than that when you put it in the context of a performance, right? Mm-hmm. Are you, are you interested in acting as well? Um, yeah, I used to be more interested in acting, but I feel like... Dance kind of took over, and so I got a lot of my artistic. I got a lot of the 
feel like dance is a way that I express myself artistically for the most part. Karaoke. Yeah. Would you say you're a, a karaoke regular around town? Yes. I do go to JP's on Wednesdays for karaoke. I thought that was Fridays. I'm tripping. Um, Wednesday through Saturday. Damn. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Share JP's like we're right. Share a little bit. Okay. Sometimes I'll go to karaoke on the first Saturday at Last Stop. They don't. I don't know if they always do that though. Sorry, which stop? Last stop. It's a. It's in Winooski, right by the train tracks. It's on the other side from Burlington. Truly, the last stop. Yes. <laughs> I never get out there. Mm-hmm. I get off way earlier. Yeah. Do you do you have a karaoke crew? Mm. Well, I mean, usually I go with a couple friends. Well, with a friend and my beau. talk more about them yeah they're great singers you know so together you're sort of a dream team pretty much not dream girls though no I wish and I am telling you I'm not going there Mm-mm. with you right now Mm-mm. Um, you, you've been partnered for a little while now right yeah I've been following on social media. Oh, have you? Haven't we all? Um, I want to say, knowing both of you, pre-union, I ship your union. Mm. A thousand percent. I appreciate that. I do too. (laughs) What are you reading lately? Mm. Well, I picked up this book. It talks about quantum physics. It's kind of interesting. Um, It's more of a translation for those among us who might not be science minds. So it's just, it's, it's interesting to look at some of the concepts when you look at, you know, how, how something can exist in two states at the same time. I feel like there's an analogy there for how I make decisions because at any given moment, you know, I could go directly home after work or I could go out to play some pool. And as soon as I make a decision for one of those things, I can't do the other anymore. And that I feel like is why I personally am not very, why I'm not very decisive about anything, because once you make a choice, it collapses all the other all the other possibilities. I like keeping options open like that. And there's kind of a theory in, you know, in quantum physics where, you know, a where a quantum particle can exist in two states and you can only you can only 
determine what the state is by measuring it, but by measuring it, that forces it into a state. And so that's why I personally, <laughs> that's why I kind of, that's why I kind of like, I like it theoretically, where I like looking into that kind of, that kind of ambiguity. I really enjoy that. Expound if you can at all. I'm like here for this. Say some more quantum shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example that kind of helps with the, the theory behind that. So, of course, you look at Schrodinger's cat. I don't know if you've heard of this thought experiment where you put a cat in poison in a box and then you close the lid. And at the moment when you close a lid, the cat either has eaten the poison and is dead, or the cat has not eaten the poison and is alive. And so in that moment, the cat is both alive and dead because you don't know which it is. But when you open the box and you measure the aliveness of this cat, that's when the cat is forced into one of those, one of those realities. And so I just really like that, that duality. That physics. Of course. Brings. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Nobody wants a cat to be dead. Bye. Yeah, don't hurt cats, anyone. No. Don't even think about hurting a cat. Yeah. P.S. This is not an experiment you should try. It's a no. thought experiment. Right. You use your critical thinking skills to understand what... <laughs> Cedric is saying right yeah. now. <laughs> I do not have liability coverage for that. <laughs> Insurance, that's right. It's <laughs> your thing. So the concept of things being sort of in a state of flux until they aren't. Mm -hmm. Is that interesting to you? Is that what you're getting That at? is interesting to me. Go on. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I feel like I feel like I personally really appreciate change, not necessarily for the sake of change, but I feel like when you move things around in your house, when you change your patterns, when you walk a different way somewhere, you open up new possibilities, but you also kind of force yourself out of a comfort zone. And so if you're, if you're going the same way to work, you do the same routine after work, you do the same thing day after day, then you kind of get stuck in that rut. But if you do, if you, if you change it, if you make your life dynamic, then I feel like it's a less boring because I feel like I get bored pretty easily, but also you kind of find things out about yourself and about the world that you wouldn't have found otherwise. When you make your life dynamic, <laughs> go on. Yeah. I mean, for me, so for me, you know, I spent 10 years working at Comcast and then I, you know, spent a few, few months trying to find another job. And then I found, I kind of stumbled into this situation where selling insurance now, and I didn't even have a car before I got the job. So here I am learning about auto insurance and learning about homeowners insurance and like not being insured for either. So, I mean, I feel like learning learning how to think about risk in a way that was different from the way that I personally thought about it 
and that was more empirical it was just an interest i mean first of all it was just an interesting thing to do but then you know having to apply that to how you help people to like protect their assets against losses that's that's just another level of of intriguing who said insurance was boring not me Mm-mm. i didn't you know i you know i'm not going to lie i thought it was but you get into something like that and it, i mean there's just there's a lot there i feel like one thing that i personally appreciate is learning a lot about really complex systems so that's why when i was younger why i got into politics and you know that's why even when i was working at comcast you know you kind of you read the stories and you find out how you know each you know how channels are owned by specific companies and how those companies kind of shuffle around the stations for the content and then how licensing works and things like that so I just really enjoy learning those really complex systems and insurance is a really complex system and so it's just something that I think is pretty interesting well speaking of insurance how do you feel about the state of healthcare in this country mm. well I mean, I feel like there's really no reason for healthcare to be tied to a job. I guess it's a starting point. Um, I feel like we haven't really found an, a, an appropriate way to make a single-payer healthcare system work that could scale nationally. Um, I mean, I know people talk about Medicare for All. I mean... I, to be honest, I don't know enough about Medicare to know whether or not that could really scale in the way that people think it should. Um, but all I know is that it's really expensive for people to get primary care from the emergency room, and everybody who pays taxes is paying for that, and that just isn't the system that I think we should have. I mean, I feel like I feel like people deserve a little bit more dignity than like having to go to an ER and wait hours for something that should be a routine visit or that could have been helped in preventive care, which should just be free. What, like, why can't we at least do that? Why can't we? Well, I mean, I feel like I feel like the concern, the concern, like, at a thousand feet is it. The profit motive is what drives prices of medicine and medical care. And if, the, if, if, if people who control the pricing don't have a vested interest in people being healthy because it kind of cuts into their profit margin, then... I feel like the, the problem is that we're we're thinking about healthcare in the wrong way. So, the alternative would be to think about it in what way? I mean, I feel like I feel like if the Hippocratic Oath 
applied <laughs> to to the pharmaceutical industry in a more specific and maybe regulated way, then you know I feel like I feel like that's what we need. What we need is we need what we need is for the entirety of healthcare to be to have as its primary goal for people to be healthy. And it sounds it sounds like I'm being cute, but really I feel like I feel like there isn't an interest and there isn't a there, there why would if you have a if you have a medicine that can that can save someone's life then and you have a person who can't afford that medicine then I feel like there has to be a way for I don't know there's a different way to think about this yeah I feel like at the end of the day healthcare should be reasonably affordable for somebody who's making a minimum wage job shouldn't be tied to their job so that they don't lose their health care at the same time as they lose their job. And I feel like anyone who works in health care should be held to a standard that they have to they have to do everything they can to get people healthy and keep people healthy as easily and as affordably as possible. sounds revolutionary mm. well I know it's a radical idea that people in control of keeping us healthy should do everything they can to do that <laughs> but it really it really is a lot simpler to say a lot harder to do because of course it comes back to that question of of politics. I mean, there are a bunch of pharmaceuticals and a bunch of healthcare providers that spend a lot of money to lobby Congress and to lobby state houses and to lobby governors and to lobby presidents to maintain the status quo so that there aren't controls on drug prices, so there aren't controls on healthcare prices, there aren't controls on profit margins that you can make in those industries. And so until there's more pain in going with the healthcare industry than there is in protecting people's rights, the status quo is going to stay the same. So do you see an inherent conflict of interest <clears throat> in multi-billion dollar trillion dollar industries built around people's well-being is is there an inherent conflict of interest when a profit motive is involved in keeping people well yeah i mean if if on the one hand people are healthy and they don't need your services and on the other hand people are not healthy and they need your services of course the thing that's more profitable for you is for people not to be healthy and so if the public good is served by people being healthy and your profit your your profits are served by 
people not being healthy, then that, that, is, that is a quintessential conflict of interest. So is that fucked up? Yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly ripe for change. What does black and brown queer culture in Vermont look like to you? Mm. Well, I mean, here's, here's the thing is that I feel like there's this intersection between a culture that... It's like an intersection between kind of the, the gay or queer culture. Sorry if I offended anybody with that. Uh, that tries to at least give lip service to being open to people of color. And then there's the black and brown population that I feel like is more welcoming than people give it credit for. I mean, especially in my family. And, uh, and, and also has a lot of also has some some work to do to be to be more open and go beyond go beyond tolerant to accept it you know you're saying there's an intersection between gay cis white people um, who who are welcome to including people of color into their fold or what I'm saying is it mm. what I'm saying is that there is kind of this there's a bit of distance I guess is what I'm trying to say between you know a GLBTQ population that you know Want, I, I think they. I think it wants to be open, but are they I feel white? Like there isn't. Are yeah. They, yeah. Okay. So a white LGBTQ contingent in Vermont mm-hmm. that would like to see itself be more POC inclusive. Exactly, and a POC community who is not LGBTQ is that what you're? What yeah, you're saying? POC. So a cis straight yeah population that I feel like is at least tolerant for the most part, but that has some work to do to become accepting. So you see these as two different factions, and never the twain shall meet. Well, of course, there is that group of people in the middle that's. You know, the POC community that, yeah, exactly. And I feel like, I feel like for me personally, that's a nice place to be because I mean, you get the best of the culture, (laughs) but you can still, but you can still, you can still like be really, you, you can, I guess, I mean, I guess what I really appreciate about being in the middle there is being able to stand in my truth as a 
as a black guy, but also being able to be gay and not having to apologize about it because I've already had to go through coming out to my family and coming out to the entire world on the one hand, but I've also had to go through the world as a black guy. And I mean, both of these identities have kind of taught me different things about how the world treats people, how people in power treat people who don't have that power. And I mean, for me personally, what I have to do to be able to make myself make my, to what I have to do personally to be able to fit in better with the world, but also to try to do what I can to bring the world along with me, I guess. To, to hold both of those identities mm-hmm. in this place, what does it really mean for you? I mean, for me, holding both identities in Vermont is like, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult thing to do on the one hand because of the reactions that you get from other people. I mean, Which sure, I'll do, people, well, obviously I'll do what I want, but like, you know, I go into Red Square and, you know, you're going to get a different reaction than you are if you go to half lounge. I don't know. I mean, are you and why? <laughs> so I guess to kind of put a finer point on it, when you're in a state that is as as white as Vermont is, but that likes to think of itself as pretty open and accepting, on the one hand, people can really surprise you with how aware they are of where they of where they are in life and what advantages they may have, but they can really surprise you when they don't realize that too. You're talking about um, the myth of the woke white person. Yeah, I mean, first of all, we've all heard the song, you you don't get woke, you stay woke. (laughs) We've all heard the song. I mean... I feel like everybody has has some work to do and it's it's not a task it's a way of living to find the things in the world that don't make sense and that don't benefit everybody and to do what you can in your capacity with your privilege to change those because I mean I can do what I can. I mean, I can put myself in those situations where it's maybe not the most comfortable for me, but where it gives somebody else exposure to something that's a little different from what they see in the rest of their life in Vermont. And I'm happy to put myself in that situation and have those awkward conversations about what my life is like and how that differs from people around me. But I can only do so much. And there are some people that I can't really reach. 
So I feel like the best thing for people who don't share in the best thing for people who care about the plight of others that they don't share is to try to be as aware as possible of it, but to talk to people who look more like you. When that I can't reach when you want to when you want to do good in the world. You're saying that it's important for white people to talk primarily to other white people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean people about what they can do better. Yeah. As white people to service people who aren't white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean every you know, everybody has a story about oh my uncle that you know isn't as hip as the rest of the family. He's just straight up fucking racist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean are you gonna let are you gonna let somebody go through life with that kind of prejudice and not talk about it? I mean, not do everything you can to help them to realize that whatever idea they have about people that don't look like them is unfounded. I feel the most burned out is when I'm like almost sweaty and I'm on a dance floor, and then some song from the '90s comes on. Like some Missy Elliott, like some back in the day super duper fly comes on. Get your freak on, mm. Cedric, please. And I just can't, I can't help it. That dance floor gets broken. That rug gets cut. Quiet. Hush your mouth. Silence when I. Spit it out. <laughs> Sir, is there anything else that we're leaving out of the picture of the story? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to get afternoon special on you, but please do. Go for it. I feel like... I feel like we should all take a moment to think about when you're, let's see here, I gotta, I gotta word this right. I feel like we, I feel like we as a culture, we as a people, when you think about it in the broadest sense, we have to find ways to help other people feel involved in decision-making and we have to take care of each other because there is this big um, I mean these big institutions in this country that that dictate a lot of what happens and you have a lot of people who are affected by those but they don't have decision-making capabilities and so the only the only power that people have is the power that they exercise by voting and by getting involved in politics and getting involved in community organizing because that's really where that's really where change happens and I mean there's not a silver bullet I mean you're not going to elect Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders and it's going to change we're the world we're not I'm 
I'm not saying that you can't elect them. I'm saying that if you do, that's not going to be the the catalyst for change. I mean, remember, remember when we elected the first black person to hold the office of president? I mean, certainly things changed in positive ways. On the on the like at the end of the day, I appreciate the leadership of Barack Obama. I feel like he did he did what he could within a context that kind of thwarted him at every turn to change the country. But but I feel like what we really needed is we needed to elect state houses and governorships and a House of Representatives and a Senate that could support him and could support his ideas and ensure that they weren't reversed after his term. And if we make that same mistake of thinking this one person in this one position of power can help us to save the world, then I think we're, un- we're in for a little bit of a disappointment. So, start local. When your friends are running for office, you got to lift your friends up. When politicians that even you don't agree with make decisions that support an agenda you can agree with, you have to you have to give them props because, of course. The name beside the the letter beside the name of a politician isn't necessarily going to determine how they vote anyway. I mean, we've seen we've seen Republicans go in ways that <laughs> vote in ways that we we really couldn't have imagined a couple of years ago. And if there's a grassroots movement that starts from state houses and I feel like that's kind of the only thing that can really make radical change in the country well alright then Cedric it's been a pleasure speaking with you today thank you very much for being on the program of course